As we jump back into the Gospel of Luke this morning, I want to talk about our expectations a bit. I think we've talked about expectations a little bit, but it comes up again in our passage today. As you know, all disappointment is the result of unmet expectations. We all have times in our lives when our expectations in our reality don't match where where what we think should be and what actually is aren't the same. Um, you may have had a vacation that had a certain amount of expectations put upon it, and you did not meet those expectations at all. I remember that one time, Nicole and I and a friend were in Brussels, Belgium, and when we were there, we made a list to see what are the famous sites in Brussels, and one of the one of the sites is a statue in we didn't really, we're not particularly keen on seeing the statue, but we're in Brussels, so we should probably go see it. And so we're walking through the streets after getting a croissant and um, some coffee in the morning, and we, we could see, we could hear a crowd gathered or near this statue, and we could hear it. It was loud, it was bustly, people were, like, you could hear, like, shutters from camera clicks, and and you could just hear all of the noise, and as we turned the corner, we could see the crowd, and the crowd was kind of big around this statue, and you could see the cameras and people trying to do selfies and all of the things, and then we see the statue, and we realize it's a stall. <laughs> we're like, well, that did not meet our expectations one bit. And thank goodness it wasn't something we had to buy tickets for. We would have really been disappointed. Expectations are real, and you've probably also been the victim of unfair expectations or unrealistic expectations, that boss that thinks you have more hours in a day than you actually do. The teacher who gives you so much homework and seems to forget that other teachers actually give homework too. The spouse who might expect you to be more than you can be. And maybe it's the expectations you place on yourself where you feel like, I can, I can never meet my own expectations. Well, we're going to encounter a time in this text where, where the expectations of Jesus maybe were, were a little off. And we're going to see that Jesus doesn't always meet the expectations of those around him. And we're also going to see that Jesus can be trusted when we don't understand Jesus can be trusted when we don't understand, when we don't understand the way things are going, when we don't understand the world around us, when we don't understand why he's acting a certain way. Jesus can be trusted. So if you have your Bible or your cell phone, I hope you do, turn to Luke chapter 7, and we'll begin in verse 18, and I'll read through verse 35. God's Word says, Then John's disciples told him about all these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord, asking, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. After John's messengers left, 
he, that is Jesus, began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who are splendidly dressed and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, in more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. But the last, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. To what then should I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths, and it leads us to the light that is Christ. So, Father, would you do that um, through the preaching of your word this morning? Would you guide us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we jump into our text this morning, we see the first thing that Jesus does is he addresses a question. Jesus addresses a question. The passage start with John the Baptist, and he is in prison right now. It's something the text does not mention. And he sends some people that followed after him to ask Jesus a question in verse 19 that is repeated again in verse 20. And the question is, are you the one to come, or is there someone else? Are you the one that is to come, or should we expect someone else? You see, the question that John's disciples were asking was a question of if Jesus was really the Messiah. Was he the one sent from God to deliver them? And the question I have about the question is why in the world is John the Baptist asking this question? The text doesn't just state the reason why, so we have to kind of presume a couple different things. But the reason that John might ask this kind of question is because he had a certain expectation of the Messiah that he was trying to reconcile with what Jesus was doing. He had had an expectation, and in the broader world at the time, there was an expectation that this Messiah would come with judgment, with, with a sense of severity and harshness to him. If we look back in Luke 3, when John the Baptist was preaching, we'd see this. He, John, then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Pretty harsh, right? And then we jump down to verse 9, and it says, therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John believed in Jesus. He came preaching before him. And, but he was trying to reconcile with this message that he was giving that every 
tree that doesn't produce fruit will be cut down to flee the coming wrath. And the fact that here's Jesus, he just seems to be healing everybody and doing all of this amazingly gracious things. John believed in Jesus. He believed he was the one sent by God. But he needed some confirmation. And so he goes to Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to the question? Well, I think we see first that he responds, his first response is not words, but it is action. It's like John and his disciples are standing there with Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, are you, are you the person? John sent us to ask you, are you the person? And Jesus is like, hold on a minute. And he begins just healing a bunch of people. It's like, like their conversation's interrupted, and Jesus just starts healing people. It says in verse 21, at that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirit, and he granted sight to many blind people. And it's kind of funny when you think about it, right? Here's John, are you the Messiah? And then what does Jesus do? Is he just starts like throwing out evil spirits and healing people and giving people sight. And then he says, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told good news. And if it sounds kind of familiar to you, it's because it sounds an awful lot like Isaiah 61, which is the passage Jesus read back in Luke 4 where he says, where he declares the year of the Lord's favor, the recovery of sight to the blind. And he shows by his actions that he is in, is in fact the one sent by God. Jesus responds to the real question of John and his disciples by showing them who he was. And Jesus also responds with kindness. Like all throughout the book of Luke, I've just been amazed as we watch Jesus' interaction. Because sometimes we just expect God to act in certain ways. And Jesus seems to always act in a way that is a bit surprising. Or he acts in ways that are a bit more compassionate than ways that we assume God would be like. But notice that his response when John asks, asks the question is not, John, what the heck, bro? Like, Like, go back to our parents. You know that I'm the Messiah. Get your stuff together, John. Like, go read the scriptures again. I'm that guy. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't chide John's real question. He doesn't, like, look down upon him. He doesn't make John feel stupid. I had a college professor, Poli Sci, 351, Dr. Nykirk. He used to start off, Every semester with, there are no stupid questions, only stupid people who need to ask them. <laughs> Which <laughs> is like, I, I guess, but, but Jesus doesn't do that here. He's not like, this is a stupid question, John. You've seen all of this stuff. No, he just kind of shows forth who he is. And John's real question is satisfied by the real Jesus. Friends, I find this encouraging because Jesus can handle our questions, our real legitimate concerns when our expectations of Jesus are different than our reality. Jesus can handle the questions. He doesn't belittle us. 
He doesn't look down upon us. And he welcomes them. And what I find also encouraging about this is that if Jesus can handle our questions, then other people's questions about Jesus, we don't need to be afraid of. Like He provides a model for us. That we don't have to just be fearful of others' questions. We don't need to be surprised when others, ourselves included, are confused. Jesus can handle it. And he concludes this section by saying, at the end of it, that blessed is the person who isn't offended by him. A statement that is remarkable in some ways, because the last time we saw this blessing language was back in the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor, and for they get the kingdom of God, and all of this stuff. And he says, blessed is the person that isn't offended by him. And this tells me a couple of different things. Well, this, this tells me first that there are going to be people who are offended by Jesus. That Jesus sometimes is offensive because he doesn't he doesn't match up with what they want. In both, both people on, on all sides try to do this to Jesus. I, can't, I think that Jesus, if he were around, he would, be, he would be loving. And they don't look at the text and show how Jesus is loving. Or, or if Jesus was around, he would be this way. And they kind of force Jesus into their box rather than let Jesus say for himself who he is. Jesus is going to be offensive to some. But the people who are blessed, that the good life is found in in not being offended by Jesus. It's found in when we have our questions about him and our confusions and our concerns that we can, like John, say, okay, I don't really understand how this works, but I'm going to trust you. Jesus can be trusted whenever we don't understand John knows this, and he rests in Jesus. And then, and then the scene shift. We go from the disciples of John talking to Jesus to Jesus talking to the crowds about John. So like the, the camera pans, and now we see just Jesus in the crowds. And Jesus, at the beginning of our section in verse uh, 24, he begins to go into lawyer mode as he tries to prove a point about the person of John the Baptist and why people went out into the wilderness to hear him preach. And he says, what were you looking for? He asked if they went out into the wilderness to see a reed blown about or swaying by the wind. And if you don't know what that means, um, it's okay. I didn't either until a commentary helped <laughs> explain it to me. But basically, Jesus is saying, hey, did you go out to the wilderness to see somebody who had nothing to say? And the answer would have been no. And then he goes on and said, did you go out to see someone dressed in like fine clothes? And the answer would have been, of course not. Those people don't live in the wilderness. They live in palaces. And John the Baptist wasn't really much to behold. And then Jesus goes further and says, did you go out because he was a prophet? Crowd silent. And Jesus said, yeah, that's why you went out. Because he was a prophet. And prophets have messages. Prophets have messages. People don't go listen to prophets 
because they're well-dressed. People don't go listen to prophets because they got nothing to say. People go to prophets and listen to prophets because what they have to say is really interesting. And it could be from God. That's why people went out to see John. He had an interesting message and they went out to hear that message. And what was John's message? Well, we see Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1 in verse 27. He says, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Jesus says that John was a prophet, that he was, that he was a prophet predicting and preparing the way for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And John came preaching a message of repentance, that is a turning away from sin and a turning to God, a turning away from your ways and turning to God's ways. And what Jesus is doing in this section is he is validating at once John's message of repentance and Jesus's message of grace. And he is pulling them both together and saying both are true and valid. Jesus is saying that the message John preached was a true message and that he was the Messiah, the one whom John said that he wasn't even worthy to untie his sandal. John was a person that pointed to and paved the way to Jesus. Their messages weren't on. And Jesus in this statement is also doing something that's kind of um, interesting in, in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is saying that John is both fulfillment of of Old Testament promises. He says in verse 28, I tell you, those among I tell you, among those born of woman, no one is greater than John, but the least in the kingdom is greater than he. It's kind of a confusing statement that we'll get into in a minute. But in the Gospel of Luke, time is presented as a time of promise and fulfillment. In the Old Testament, the time before Jesus was a time of promise, where God promised to deliver his people from sin, where he promised to send someone to, to rescue them from their oppressors, where he promised to send someone in the line of David. That was a time of promise. And since Jesus has stepped into the scene, it's now the time of fulfillment, where God is fulfilling all of those promises way back then. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying that John is the gap between the time of promise and a time of fulfillment. And he serves as the last and greatest prophet in that time. So he's kind of a transitory, can't say that word, prophet. And as a bridge that stands between times of promise and times of fulfillment, where God is fulfilling all of his promises to Israel. And in the time of fulfillment, in the time that we live in now, in the time that Jesus was ushering in that time of fulfillment, even the lowest person in the last person is as great and greater than a prophet. That in the time of fulfillment, you didn't need to have status of like a prophet. You didn't need to be like John. In the time of fulfillment, you're actually greater because you are brought to the table of the king. And in Luke, up until this point, we saw rich centurions, people who were outside of the people of God because they worked for Rome. And we saw poor widows be invited at the table of the king where Jesus recognizes them, honors them, and preaches good news to them and rescue them. Jesus is saying that you don't have to be a prophet to be great in the kingdom. You just got to be like these people who repent and follow. 
And the response to the crowd from the crowd at the time is, well, the crowds, the tax collectors, the people who are on the outs, the people who are on the outside of the system, they're like, this is great news. Jesus will welcome me, and I can be great in his kingdom. And the Pharisees and the experts in the law, they, they don't get it. And the contrast that Luke is making could not be more stark. The people were willing to let Jesus defy their expectations. The people willing to trust in him were the people who acknowledged that Jesus was God's plan. But the Pharisees and the experts, they had constructed boxes that God had to fit in. They misunderstood and misinterpreted Scripture, even though they were supposed to be the experts of it, and these things kept them from seeing God's ways. They're blinded by their own expectations of who Jesus should be. And Jesus confronts their expectations, and he confronts ours too. Text switches, and Jesus tells a bit of a parable that we'll reread. It says, to what, this is in verse 31, I think, to what uh, then should I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. Do you ever feel like you can't make everybody happy? Or that you're making no one happy at all? Can't ever feel like you can't do anything right? How about those of you with children? Like they wake up one morning and they say, Dada or Mama, I want some Cheerios. They're like, okay, buddy. And you get Cheerios and like, oh, I don't want Cheerios. And you're like, well, do you want, you name like some other cereal or whatever. No, I don't want that either. And it's like, well, what do you want, child? Like, what can I get you? Well, that's kind of what Jesus is saying the people are like here. That they're acting like a bunch of bratty kids who don't know what they want. And Jesus says, like, hey, John comes preaching repentance, and you're like, eh, too harsh, not buying it. And then Jesus comes, and he's, he's like full of grace and kindness and welcoming people into his kingdom. And you're like, eh, too nice. And if I were to like give this the Don standard version paraphrase, this is like Jesus is like, what do you want, people? What do you want? You see, they had all of these expectations on Jesus, these preconceived notions, these boxes that they wanted the Messiah to fit into. And they were rejecting John, and they rejected Jesus. And they were missing God's ways all together. Their assumptions about him prevented them from seeing who he really was. You see, there are really only a couple of options when it comes to Jesus. And the text presents two. You can either walk in his ways or you can reject him altogether. You can either acknowledge that even when he doesn't necessarily fit your expectations, you can be like John and say, Jesus, I don't understand, but I'm going to follow you. Or you can be like the Pharisees and say, nah, you're not living up to my standards, Jesus. We can be like John and trust Jesus when it's hard, or we can close off God altogether. 
there is a danger, and there's a particular danger amongst people who are like theologically minded. I would put myself in this camp where we think that God has to work in a special way. And like, yes, we should absolutely evaluate everything according to God's word. But we can have our boxes where God has to fit. This can cause theological pride. This can cause us to ridicule other Christians and denominations and miss out on what God is doing there. The good news is that Christ works through our brokenness. Things don't have to fit our little boxes. The other way we can be like those who rejected Jesus is to never ask God our questions. That we just kind of push them down and don't say, Jesus, I know you're the one, but can you help me figure this out with my life? And I want to encourage you to bring your questions to the light like John did. The question of like, God, why do I keep struggling over and over again? Or why aren't you giving me victory over this sin? Or God, I don't understand how you're good and these circumstances are so bad. Or God, I don't get why this is happening to me. Jesus, I don't get what you're doing. And I want to encourage you to run towards Jesus, to, to, to lay your questions out before him. Because the response from John is he didn't get the answer to every question. Jesus just showed him who he was and what he's done. You see, to follow after Jesus is to embrace repentance and his grace for you. So you can trust Jesus, and the way that you do that is by repenting of the ways that you've done wrong. By, by realizing, God, I'm coming to you, and I don't understand, and I'm going to follow you anyways, because my ways are not the way to follow, and I want to follow you. And to believe that Christ is actually gracious enough to receive you. And friends, when we come to God with our questions, with our confusions, when, we, when we're willing to lay down our lives, to turn from our sin and to run towards him, Jesus will show you what he did. He'll show you a cross and an empty tomb. He doesn't necessarily answer every question. He didn't answer every question for John. He just said, John, look, healing people, good news is preached to the poor, dead people are raised to life. And when we come to Jesus, say, Jesus, are you the one? Are you really true? He says, I was once dead, and now I'm alive. You might not get everything that's going on, but I'm just telling you that I'm risen, and I'm ruling and reigning. And if we can repent of our sin, and if we can embrace Christ in the middle of our confusion about him, and look at what he's done, friends, we will turn from our sin and run into his grace. And we'll see that because he bore our sin, in his, on, in his body, on the tree, then he can be trusted when I don't understand everything that's happening.